Thanks for listening to the podcast. Today is Saturday the 22nd of August. 100 years ago today, in Waukegan, Illinois, Ray Douglas Bradbury was born. What better way to celebrate than with John Eller, the author of Becoming Ray Bradbury, Ray Bradbury Unbound, and the new final biographical volume, Bradbury Beyond Apollo. This is actually the first of a two-parter, as John and I have a lot to discuss. Welcome to Bradbury 100. This is Bradbury 100, celebrating the centenary year of American writer Ray Bradbury. I'm Phil Nichols of bradburymedia.co.uk. Each week on the podcast, we look at some aspect of Bradbury's life and work and interview someone who is inspired by Ray. Welcome again to Bradbury 100. In today's show, I'll be interviewing someone who is unquestionably the world's leading expert on the life and works of Ray Bradbury. Jonathan R. Eller has written three volumes of biography on Ray, beginning with Becoming Ray Bradbury, and culminating this year, well, this month actually, with Bradbury Beyond Apollo. And through his work with the Centre for Ray Bradbury Studies in Indianapolis, John has done more than anyone to secure continuing public access to Ray's papers, files and effects. As you'll have heard on a previous episode of the podcast, great things have come from the Bradbury Centre, including the critical edition of Ray's collected stories and the journal, the new Ray Bradbury Review. Now, full disclosure, I've been a consultant on the critical edition series and on John's biographies, and I'm on the editorial board of the new Ray Bradbury Review, so... If I seem a bit enthusiastic about them, I apologise, but I know them very well. But I can't really take any credit for any of these, because all of the hard work on all of these projects has been done by John Eller. In these little introductory sections of the podcast, I usually talk about some aspect of Bradbury's work as a way of putting the interview in context. But this week is a bit different, since really the whole interview is about aspects of Bradbury's work and how John Eller has set about revealing it to the reader. So instead, I thought I'd talk about the little matter of biographies, generally, because Ray's life seems to attract all sorts of biographers. Now, there is one book out there which is officially designated as the authorised biography of Ray, and that's The Bradbury Chronicles by Sam Weller. As with many authorised biographies, the chief source of information for Sam's book was the subject himself, i.e. Ray Bradbury. Sam worked with Ray for many years to dig out the facts about Ray's past, and he did a very good job of it too. Actually, what I've always admired about Sam's book is how he fitted so much into a single volume. And Sam also avoided the um, sycophancy that often goes with authorised biographies. His book does even have some episodes where Ray doesn't come off as Mr Perfect, and that's a brave move on the part of the biographer. 
Some years after the Bradbury Chronicles came out, Sam Weller issued another book called Listen to the Echoes, and this presents all of the interviews that Sam conducted with Ray as a continuous single piece. And this book is fascinating in itself. You get to hear the the same anecdotes again that you came across in the Bradbury Chronicles, but all of them through Ray's voice. But there have also been other biographies, best known after Sam's, are the ones by John Eller, which you're going to hear a lot about both this week and next week on the podcast. But there's also a self-declared unauthorised biography of Ray, and it's called Ray Bradbury Uncensored. This one is written by Jean Beely, a journalist who assembled the book's contents over a number of years, well, decades, really. When I reviewed the book for my blog some years ago, I pointed out that it wasn't really a biography in the true sense, but it was more a collection of articles written at different times. But there is one thing that the book does really quite well, and that is capture the spirit of Ray's live lectures. Jean provides accounts of two of these, and his journalistic skill is such that it makes you feel as if you're there. He covers two lectures, one which was, if you like, a good one, and one where, well, let's say it didn't go down very well with the audience. And then there are various smaller biographies of Ray in encyclopedias uh, and Wikipedia, of course. But here's a caveat for you. Do please be wary of any biography which gets Ray's name wrong. It's a sign of poor fact-checking, and it's something which plagued uh, the Wikipedia article on Ray for years. I I would frequently go in there and correct the mistaken way it gives Ray's name, and then within days somebody else would go in there and change it back, and I'd go in there and I'd correct it, and they'd change it back. What's the issue? Well, the issue is that Ray Douglas Bradbury was a Ray. He was not a Raymond But you'd be surprised how many places call him Raymond Douglas Bradbury. It's wrong. Even the otherwise excellent Encyclopedia of Fantasy makes this mistake. So I use the name test as a way of indicating the fact-checking of any particular biography. There are even some books for children about Ray, which feature short biographies of him, usually focusing on his childhood. Now, I'm not entirely sure why these exist, really. But maybe there are similar books about other authors. It's just that I've never gone looking for them. But in Ray's case, I imagine it's because Ray so often wrote about children and about childhood, and occasionally he wrote for children as well. And of course, it's quite well known that his fictional Doug Spaulding, the central child character of Dandelion Wine, is really a thinly disguised version of Ray Douglas Bradbury. If you're looking for a good general biography of Ray in a single volume, I strongly recommend Sam Weller's The Bradbury Chronicles. But if you want to go more deeply into the development of Ray's thinking and how his stories reveal that, then you really can't do better than the three volumes by John Eller. Uh, Becoming Ray Bradbury shows us the young adult Ray as he develops from an amateur writer into a professional and then becomes a major force in genre fiction and beyond. The second volume, Ray Bradbury Unbound, 
shows us Ray breaking free of genre publications and becoming just a Ray Bradbury writer, but also branching out into screenwriting and theatre and poetry. And the latest volume by John, Bradbury Beyond Apollo, shows Ray becoming a spokesman for the space age, as well as picking up speed as an author at an age when most people would be thinking of retiring. Well, now let's meet this week's guest on Bradbury 100. In fact, he's going to be with me this week and next week because we have a lot to cover. Let's meet John Eller. Joining me today on Bradbury 100 is Jonathan R. Eller. He's Chancellor's Professor of English at Indiana University, the director of the Centre for Ray Bradbury Studies, and the author of three biographical books on Bradbury, Becoming Ray Bradbury, Ray Bradbury Unbound, and released this year to coincide with the Bradbury Centennial, Bradbury Beyond Apollo. John, welcome to Bradbury 100. Thank you very much, Phil. I appreciate being here with you. John, your books are based on meticulous historical and archival research, but you also knew Ray Bradbury personally. When did you two first meet? We first met in the very late 1980s. I was a major in the U.S. Air Force, and I was on the faculty of the U.S. Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. Two of my uh, colleagues in the English department, Captain Carmen Alatori and Major Kurt Martin, had put together this amazing science fiction conference called Nexus, and they had arranged to bring in four uh, science fiction writers, David Brin, Joe Haldeman, Octavia Butler, and the keynoter was Ray Bradbury. So... As we divvied up responsibilities uh, for their conference, Kurt and Carmen said, John, your specialty in American literature is uh, descriptive and analytical bibliography. Ray Bradbury's writings are complex and tremendously rich. We're going to turn Ray Bradbury over to you. So Debbie and I ended up for that week in 1989, April of 1989, hosting Ray Bradbury. It was a very intense week. There were a lot of times when his schedule was really tight because the media and, of course, the academy, the whole campus, were following his every move. And there were times when we just broke away to get a little quiet time. I remember one morning I said, the schedule's clear for a couple hours. Let's just get off the campus. And so we drove a little bit south on the Rampart Range, the, the beginning of the Rocky Mountains in central Colorado where the academy is. And we drove down to Red Rocks, which is an amazing red sandstone formation of upthrust rocks, gigantic rocks. And it always seemed to me like it was a little bit of Mars on Earth. I, I think really the most bonding time that week for our friendship was really not the major events where he spoke to uh, large groups of Air Force Academy cadets in lecture hall or the public event on the last night where he spoke for both the Academy and uh, Colorado Springs general population. But it was one other morning that week where uh, in the back of my mind, I, I had been bothered all week by the fact that so many schools wanted to see him. Teachers would call uh, wanted to at least give me copies of their students' writings to deliver to Mr. Bradbury, which we did. But there was one junior high school, that is 7th, 8th grade, and the teacher, the English teacher, who was, I think, the department head at that school, had been working with me for months to possibly make some time for him to come by. And I had to tell her at every turn that it's it's really not likely 
you know, we'll make an effort, but it's really not likely that we'll be able to do that. I think it was the third morning. He said, what's on the schedule? And I said, actually, you're free um, easily until noon. And, you know, something's really been bothering me. There's, there's this junior high school in town. They've really, really shown a, a sincere and constant interest in hosting you for just a little bit of time. What do you think? And he said, yeah, sure. S- swell, swell. It's a swell idea. He was my father's generation. So, you know, everything good was swell. So we got into town, pulled up in front of the junior high school. And there in front of the school at the top of the steps was the English teacher and the principal of the school. And they were waiting just in case we could come. Parked the car and we walked up and they were just thrilled let us in and down the hallways of the school, uh, one long hallway with classrooms off on either side. And I noticed there weren't students in the classrooms, but the teachers were all in the doorways. And as we walked past, each one would come out and turn and say, Mr. Bradbury, you're the reason I became a teacher. And he would say very low key, encouraging things, beaming at them with his smile and with his intense eyes. He'd go on down the hallway and another teacher would say the same thing. And and a librarian came out of the library and said, Mr. Bradbury, you're the reason I became a librarian. And then we get to the end of the hall and a very old teacher came out and he said, Mr. Bradbury, you changed my life. And Ray accepted and returned those sentiments because he knew here were people who loved what he loved. And he was truly honored that he had changed lives, that he had turned people back to things we take for granted, like reading and the enjoyment of reading and the the purpose in life and the enriching uh, imagination experience that comes from books. And I thought, wow, I looked at him and he was very comfortable with this role. And I realized that he'd been doing this most of his life himself when he would visit schools and countless libraries that he'd try to help preserve their buildings if they were under threat of of disrepair. Then the teacher and the principal turned a corner with us and we were in that big multi-purpose room that most schools have that serves as a cafeteria, it serves as a gymnasium, and it serves as an assembly hall. And when we walked in, the whole student body, I'd say there were a couple, two or three hundred students, and then they were all sitting in their chairs looking at the side door where we came in. At the front was a little podium and a microphone, and then on a little set of risers was the school chorus. And as soon as we walked in, like on cue, the little chorus and their teacher began to sing Ray Bradbury's Christus Apollo cantata that most of us know, I believe it's printed in the back of uh, I Sing the Body Electric, the little poem about the age of Apollo that he wrote in 1968 and uh, was first performed to music by Academy Award-winning composer Jerry Goldsmith at uh, about the same time in December of, of 1968 when Apollo 8 was circling the moon and they were reading from Genesis. Here this was now, it's 1989, And not only do the kids know that poem, but they're singing it. And I looked at Ray and I said, where on earth did they get this sheet music for this? Because it had been recorded, but I I, had never seen any publication of it. He looked at me and he said, how long do we have? And I said, 
well, you're, you're good until 1.30. And he said, good, swell. And then he walked up to the podium. He made two major speeches that week, but this was the great unknown speech, okay? He went up there and just spontaneously spoke to them. Oh, I think he spoke for 20 minutes easily. The kinds of things that always floated around in his head and locked into place whenever he gave presentations. You know, he didn't have much in the way of written notes usually. Uh, He just slot things in depending on the audience, more or less uh, fitting what it needed to be. But most presentations just needed to be really, uh, in essence, whatever Ray Bradbury wanted to say. That's when I first really realized how far beyond me and other individual readers Ray Bradbury had reached over all these years. There was one point there where it locked in with the media, local, regional, and I think a a couple of national affiliates, and they were grilling him with the usual questions about, uh, why should we go to space, Mr. Bradbury? Uh, When did you first fall in love with Mars? How do you write those amazing uh, dark fantasies and supernatural stories with their chilling twist endings? And he's going through the answers, but this was a different audience. This is the hardcore press. He's doing real well with it, but at one point, he looked over their heads at me and made a little bit of an eye gesture that said, this is the other half of what I deal with. We had uh, a wonderful beginning then, and uh, that started a number of back and forths that eventually culminated in years of visits and in uh, these books. So at what point then did you realise that you wanted to write these books? I mean, that the period you're talking about there is presumably, it, yeah, it's in the time period of the most recent book, isn't it? So you're living that book with him at that point. But when did you get the idea for writing these books? That's right. The new book, Bradbury Beyond Apollo, is uh, uh, you're halfway through this third book before you get to the part where I began to interact with him uh, for the last 23 years of his life. I mean, it's an incredibly long career. It's a, it's a, a seven-decade professional career, if you discount all the amateur writing and the school-age writing that he did. It's still seven decades from 1940-41 all the way to the day before he dies, uh, June 5th, 2012, The New Yorker, I believe it was, published a little short essay reminiscence, Take Me Home. So literally, it was a life of professional writing. Where do you begin? Where do you even get the idea to do this? Well, what I immediately did since my uh, doctoral minor, uh, besides American literature, my minor was in textual studies, uh, analytical bibliography, tracing the different texts that an author leaves behind in his or her work. Of course, Ray Bradbury had this rich history, so I immediately uh, began to put together a uh, catalog checklist, an enumerative list of his publications, and and try and and find a way to anchor the many, many variants of each, even story. The stories all have variants. As you know, Phil, they have variant titles. Some of them are rewritten. Most of them are revised when he pulls them into his collections. Where do you anchor that meaningfully in a bibliography? Well, I spent, you know, back and forth with him in in letters and occasionally on the phone, not very often, for the first couple of years. And that introduced me to Don Albright, who was for really over 50 years 
professor of, of illustration at the Pratt Institute in New York. But before that, Don, growing up in the 1940s and in the early 50s, I had become hooked on Ray Bradbury. And by the 70s, Don Albright was uh, becoming Ray's principal bibliographer and collector, by far and away the most preeminent collector of Ray Bradbury's works and artifacts. He was the, the, the one who would seek out all the information. So I immediately began working with Don, and that uh, led uh, to eventually visiting. Ray Bradbury came out to uh, Indiana in 1997. He was speaking for the Economics Club of Indianapolis at that time, and we had some time together uh, for meals, and then I took him to the airport, and he said, you know, you need to start coming out. I was not fond of flying. Uh, I'd been retired from the Air Force five years by 1997. And uh, he said, come on out. When he was 62 years old in 1982, he finally overcame his fear of flying and, and he flew quite a bit. So at the airport, he said, why don't you come on out? So in 1998, I began to go out and that, that allowed me to work in his uh, working office at home with him, going to events. A lot of it was going to events and also working with Don Albright uh, in his collection here back east. At first, what it led directly to was planning and co-authoring the book with Bill Tupont's Ray Bradbury, The Life of Fiction. From that book, by 2004, I had it in my mind that I could put together a pretty good biography uh, framed up on what we had already done about his uh, analyzing his literary works. So in the fall of 2004, I forget which visit that was, as probably my fourth or fifth trip out, I made a little checklist. I think I typed it up right there on the typewriter. He still had one of the IBM Ball Selectric typewriters in the house in Los Angeles. And I typed up an outline that just sort of put his life on a page. And I took it to him and said, I would like to put together a biography that's very comprehensive and will show how you became Ray Bradbury and what were the consequences of that magic. And then he said, yeah, sure, swell. You know, you knew that you had the blessing if he said swell. I still have that outline he wrote in, in his fairly shaky hand, but firm nonetheless. He wrote okay, RB, and he dated it October 2004. So that sort of became the inspiring flag for what, what happened thereafter. And I began to pull text together for the early years of his life and his career. And as it turns out, you've done that in three volumes. And I've mentioned that as being like dividing his life into three acts. But was it ever intended to be just one book? Um, how did you decide that it was three? Probably the next trip out would have been in 2005. And by that time, I had lots of text evolving up through the wonderful trip to Europe, uh, just as uh, in 1953 and 54 just as Bernheit was going to press, literally he had to leave before the book was even released for the, uh, uh, the sudden decision by John Huston to ask Ray Bradbury to write the screenplay for his new Warner Brothers uh, adaptation of Moby Dick. And I was now into a real fun part. I was into that European adventure because Ray Bradbury had absorbed a lot of richness from life. But he had not had a lot of drama in his life beyond the drama that a lot of his generation felt. The, uh, the displacements and uh, discomfort and 
and poverty of the Great Depression in America, the uncertainty of whether or not he would make it as a writer in the 1940s. Uh, you know, he had had drama in his life. Uh, two of his uh, siblings had died in the years, uh, early years from influenza. And so Ray Bradbury knew a lot about life, but he had not had any great adventures in life uh, beyond what he knew, what he wrote about the best, which was, of course, uh, the hopes and fears, the loves and hates, the aspirations and the terrors of childhood as that evolves into our adult lives. And that's one, of course, the great secrets uh, of Ray Bradbury's muse, of his imagination, uh, the powerhouse behind his great uh, metaphor-rich poetic style of writing. But when he gets to Europe, and again, remember, he's earthbound. So uh, he and his wife, Maggie, and uh, the two oldest children who were, uh, were already born, and so, so Susan and uh, Ramona, uh, young girls at that time, all came over and they, they were able to hire a governess, an American uh, lady, uh, actually a teacher, to, to come with them on the uh, what seemed like an extravagant salary that they were getting through the funding uh, from Warner Brothers and the, and the uh, Walter Murish and his brother, of course, uh, uh, the actual producers uh, for John Houston in this project. And they, um, uh, they were Earth Brown, so they took the train. Ray Harryhausen, I think, took them to the train station in Los Angeles. And uh, the five of them, with the governess, took the train across the United States. The New York uh, took the, I think, the SS United States over to Europe and began first with a stop in France and then in London and then finally working with, with Houston, where he worked during really all of the 1950s from Ireland. They're working uh, just outside of Dublin uh, at John Houston's uh, uh, rented manor house, Courtown House. So I was into that world now because the world opened up to Ray Bradbury then. He would say the Renaissance fell on him during that trip. After he left work with Houston there uh, on, and finished the script, and then he would go to Italy. And, and uh, Bernard Berenson, the great uh, art attributionist of the Italian Renaissance, took them in hand. They had corresponded, uh, took them in hand and showed them the Renaissance. The world was changing for Ray, and all the adventures were so well documented in his uh, travel uh, materials even in certain books, uh, one or two of Berenson's books that Ray had. He would use the front uh, end papers and the back end papers of the book and uh, some of the, uh, the front matter pages that were fairly open, like the short title page. And he would write little diary notes of what they did each day. That was a start. I had in earlier years, in the early 2000s, gotten him to talk to me about that. And he would talk about all the churches and all the works of art and all the museums that Berenson sent them to by the time they got to Florence and, and how he uh, guided their itinerary in Venice as well. Well, that was a wonderful piece of the book to be writing. That ended up taking, I think, about six or seven chapters. But what I found was these were six or seven chapters too many. They were beyond the length of a single volume, of what a single volume could bear. And I still had to do cutting in those volumes. I still had to find a publisher as well. So I was uh, thinking about that dilemma back here in Indiana. I must have been about 2005. And I was having lunch with a uh, very bright undergraduate from Indiana University, the Bloomington campus, Mike Quilligan. And Mike was finishing an honors thesis on Ray Bradbury and about to go off to graduate school. Mike was always someone I could bounce ideas off of. 
but these were great chapters. And I said to Mike, I don't want to lose those chapters. Uh, I don't want this project to fall off the end of the earth. And I don't know, I haven't really planned uh, how to compress all this. And Mike said, well, why don't you break his life into segments and do another volume? And it's funny, you get so deep into things, you don't even think about that. You always think you can get everything into one artifact. And it's, it just doesn't work that way. And, and, and when you have a, a life as rich as Ray Bradbury's, as improbable, as full of uh, luck and blessings as Ray Bradbury's life was. So I detached the European trip from the end of the first book, and I found that it didn't hurt at all. And as a matter of fact, it gave me impetus to have a good start on the second book, which would be quite a grand adventure uh, going to, uh, to Europe and Ireland and England. I was able to end the first book with a sentence that had merely ended a chapter originally, which is the moment when Ray Bradbury leaves on very short notice. They only had really two and a half weeks to get passports, to get their funding set up, and to get on the rails and head out of Los Angeles for Europe. Fahrenheit was still at press, being printed. Fahrenheit would not be released until October. But there he is in uh, September, uh, heading away to Europe. And he had no idea what was ahead for him in life or in his career. He had, of course, had a major break with the Martian Chronicles in 1950. And then the Illustrated Man in 51 was fairly prominent in the mainstream magazines. And he now had a major trade house publishing his books. But the future was still uncertain. And of course, the first volume then could simply end with the sentence, it all depended on the success or failure of the very uncertain creative venture he was about to begin with the unpredictable John Houston. For decades, this encounter would spread through his writing like a circle in the water, changing everything in its wake. So it was that moment that I knew we would have volume two. And I had sort of an Irish hunch that the book might still have too much in it and we would have to go to volume three, which is exactly what happened, of course. When you get to the high water mark of Apollo, when he's in England, as Apollo 11 mission transpires, and he ends up in interview with Mike Wallace, and that gets piped through to CBS. What he says about wars on Earth pale in comparison to the great war we fight with a very indifferent, hostile, and dangerous cosmos. We desperately need to get out there. That's where we should fight. And this is the beginning of victories in that war. And that became the point to stop the second book. The new book, Bradbury Beyond Apollo, the challenge was fitting uh, the last 40 years of his life into a third volume. What made that easy at all was because the, uh, the most exciting things in his life and the most important triumphs of his career uh, are really happening in, in the periods covered in the first two books. Those years of the 1940s to 1950s and the 19, 1960s is, is really where it all happens. So uh, those 40 years at the end of his career were manageable in a third volume. And you've said in a couple of places that, in a way, when he first went to Hollywood or, or first started working in films, that was, to some extent, a distraction from what he, if you like, should have been doing, i.e. getting on with short stories and novels and so on. Do you think the Hollywood interlude was a, a distraction that he took on because he needed to be distracted from the prose fiction. Had he sort of run out of stuff for prose at that point, or was it the, the attraction of moving into new media that led him there? You know, that's interesting. I, 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 
I think about that a lot, even before the biographies, because there is that, that sea change in, in his writing by the mid-50s, which coincides really with the deepening um, interactions with Hollywood. Yes, he's in the studios as early as 1952, you know, on, uh, on contract, working on an unproduced project at 20th Century Fox, and then more successfully on the screen story that becomes It Came From Outer Space, you know, film released in 1953. He's given credit, even though it's just one episode of The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, the famous monster in the lighthouse scene. He's given credit for that film also in 1953. But then, of course, working with Houston opens a lot of doors in Hollywood for him because he had survived the demands, the very demanding and unpredictable world of John Houston. And people knew that, well, if he could work with John Houston successfully, Moby Dick, as, as they cast it as an adventure story with some metaphysical implications, but primarily as a high drama on the sea, it worked. And Bradbury got offers by the time he comes back in 54, 55, 56. Now he knows a lot of people who know a lot of people, and that helps. At one point, along with famous artists and Ben Benjamin at, uh, at Famous Artists, he also had worked with Ingo Preminger, Otto Preminger's brother, who was an agent. And Ray was offered two Preminger films. He was offered The Man with the Golden Arm. And uh, he was offered later Anatomy of a Murder, uh, two major Otto Preminger films in the, uh, in the 50s. He was offered Friendly Persuasion because people knew in Hollywood he could write that way. But he didn't have time because he was already behind on what would become Dandelion Wine. He was behind on the Illinois novel. He was writing scripts for Hitchcock. Uh, later, for instance, in the early 60s, Hitchcock uh, asked Ray to script The Birds for him. And Ray couldn't do it because he was doing TV shows. Hitchcock said, drop them. And Ray said, I can't. They're your shows. And these were, uh, you know, shows for uh, Alfred Hitchcock Presents and I think the Alfred Hitchcock Hour, either The Jar or The Life Work of Juan Diaz, which were both produced for Hitchcock's TV show. So this was a dilemma for him. And really from the mid-50s on, his writing changes. There's less of an emphasis on the edgy Ray Bradbury twist kind of thing, on the odd, eerie otherness. There's less of that. The nostalgia becomes a little bit more sentimental. The stories become more anecdotal, sometimes less substantial, sometimes emotionally powerful, but without direction to them. And that's really the story the rest of the way on out. He's able to have those high points like pulling together something wicked this way comes the first long sustained novel. Fahrenheit, of course, had grown out of a novella. The first uh, sustained novel in 1962 and the Halloween tree in 72 and more short stories. The story collections from really from the machineries of joy in 64. And then I sing the body electric in, in 69 and really from there on even, even more pervasively, the good stories in those collections are stories that, that he, had never collected from his early strong years and, and others that he never had bothered to finish or publish or his muse hadn't moved him to go back to those stories. So you'll find that in the last uh, 40 some years of his life, the story collections have up to 50% of older stories finally polished up or rewritten and, and put into them. And it's a dilemma. And Hollywood is a big cause of that, but also his speaking engagements. He's very much in demand. He has a great speaking voice. He has a great visionary approach to almost uh, any audience venue. 
1969, uh, when he begins to work with Ruth Alban as his speaking agent in Los Angeles. Ruth was a fantastic talent. She was a singer. And Ruth Alban, later Ruth Alban Davis, put together incredible long-range speaking engagements as well as regional and local. And once Ray started flying, of course, then, you know, he could be commanding tremendous audiences as, as he did all around the country and even in, to some degree internationally. Well, all that distracted from his writing and you see it in the output from then on. And the, the reason I know that it's not just in my mind and in the minds of certain critics, the, the reviewers, generally the, the reviewers have found this trilogy fascinating largely is not because of me, but because of what we're able to illuminate from Ray Bradbury's uh, mind, his biography of the mind. They find that fascinating. But I noticed that the reviews for Ray Bradbury Unbound also noted that the second volume is a cautionary tale. And I suspect it'll be the same for the third volume as, as reviews start to come in, because it would be very hard and very biased just to try and privilege all this writing from the last 40 years of his life as being on a par with those incredible mid-century decades. So the route to go is to uh, write from the point of view of his impact and his vision and his inner world and how that plays out in his writing in later life, rather than to just try and champion all those books and all those later life stories. It's just not going to work that way. And I think the reviews will will continue to show that. It's a, uh, it's a fascinating tale, but it's also a cautionary tale of how fame, you know, fame can make you into a monster. And, and fame, fortunately, didn't make Ray Bradbury into a monster. He succumbed to some of the pressures of fame. We all know that. But at the same time, he was able to maintain his fairly optimistic perspective of do your work every day, you know, get your work done every day and move toward that other delightful late life story that I know you are a tremendous fan of. And I appreciate that you helped me realize that my own love of this story was not an isolated thing. And that is, of course, uh, the Toynbee Convector, the story where, you know, he celebrates uh, the future in a very, very unusual kind of time travel story, uh, which, as you more than once have pointed out, is really an encapsulation of what his life was all about, living for a future that you want instead of trying to destroy futures you don't want, help to try to prevent those futures, but be optimistic about the future, but believe, really believe you and others can make a difference. Believe that we can make it, even in tough times. And so um, there were stories like that, but it was, uh, it's also very clear that fame, the speaking demands, answering mail even, because he really never had a staff other than wonderful um, Alexandra Bradbury, his daughter who worked with him uh, for so many years, uh, arranging events. And uh, in later life, after the stroke, even as his amanuensis, typing out what he would dictate, often over the phone. Uh, after the 1999 stroke, he published a remarkable number of books uh, in this manner. Even with Alexandra, you know, he never really had a broad staff. Patrick Kachurka was important to him uh, in, in many ways in the 90s and 2000s as well. But a lot of his response to the public had to come directly from him. And it took away so much time that uh, Hollywood was just the largest of a number of factors that affected 
his output. I would also just add that I had a, a, a wonderful discussion with Nancy Nicholas, who was his editor at Knopf, Alfred A. Knopf, really through the 1970s and the first half of the 1980s. Nancy was an amazing editor. She worked at, at Knopf and then later in life at Simon & Schuster. And uh, she pointed out that, you know, when you look at it, science fiction and even fantasy to an extent, but science fiction is a young writer's game. And not all writers burn out, but they all change and evolve as they become older and continue to write. And at some point, most of them lose the fire and the spontaneity and the rich upwellings of the uh, subconscious that Ray consciously depended on to uh, produce the, the seeds for his stories. I think all of those things had an impact on him. I remember when you were first starting on the third volume, you and I sat in a uh, a restaurant somewhere and talked about different things that would need to go into that final volume. And I know that you were a bit anxious about having a, a clear narrative for that third volume compared to the other two, which seemed to have a strong sense of direction to them. Did you sort of become comfortable with that third volume in the end? Yes, I did. But it took a long time to become comfortable with it because there are obvious pitfalls that you and I both know and, and that you and I both discussed. I believe that was probably in uh, 2015 uh, when uh, we worked together on the uh, Ray Bradbury Film Festival here at IU Cinema at Indiana University. And what I really needed to hear from you was your take on what were the fruits of that last 40 years. And together we mapped out a bit of that. And that was the first time that, you know, I had, of course, worked in uh, uh, with B Bill Tupont's on uh, Ray Bradbury, The Life of Fiction. We had had chapters on, uh, a, a big chapter on, on the detective fiction. But you, uh, at that point, I remember, uh, said, circle back to those books, because those are some of the more important things he did. He was writing a new and different kind of fiction. Uh, they are very autobiographical, but also uh, very unrehearsed in, in, in many ways, and also bringing the reader in and also revealing those key moments when he realized he could make it as a writer and when he also realized that Hollywood would distract him, but it would never enslave him. And there you have Death is a Lonely Business and A Graveyard for Lunatics. And then we also talked, I remember, about the Halloween tree, and you confirmed some suspicions I had. Uh, already that these were perhaps three works that were worth attention in a third biography. Uh, I still hesitated. Becoming Ray Bradbury had come out in 2011. Uh, Ray Bradbury Unbound had come out uh, just a year before we were talking, which was 2014 it came out. But it really took until this year uh, to break through the challenge of making those final decades significant for a reading audience who don't know a lot, who may not know a lot about Ray, uh, Ray Bradbury's achievements during those years because they're masked so much by the iconography of Ray Bradbury. He's, he's, by this time, he's this cultural icon, this visionary for the space age, this champion of preserving libraries, this champion of the precious gift of literacy, and of course, a writer who never stopped standing up for freedom of the imagination. And, 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 of course, he never stopped adopting his work for various media. This is, of course, a world of Ray Bradbury that you know very well. And, of course, others would also be taking his work and producing versions that, uh, in many cases, weren't quite what he wanted to see done. But this took a lot of time away in his life. 
I remember uh, talking to Ray's agent, Michael Congdon, about uh, the challenges of doing a third book. And as he pointed out, you wrote about some wonderful Bradbury years there in Becoming Ray Bradbury and Ray Bradbury Unbound. Yeah, it's going to take some time. Uh, what I finally realized in about 2017, early 2018, was that the way to frame up, the way to provide an armature for volume three would be to focus on Bradbury's impact in the culture, in American culture, in world culture. I mean, it's no accident that his works are prolific in translation in foreign countries around the world. It's hard to find a robust language in the world today that he's not been translated into. Uh, we have new Armenian editions just in the last year or so, editions from the Baltic countries. We have editions uh, 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 from the Middle East and Egypt, uh, the Far East as well. And he's always been strong in Latin America, Japan, and other countries. Uh, well, there's a reason for this. It's because he's had this impact in the culture. So the third biography could become a documentation of his presence. And also, as, as I say in the introduction of the book, you got to realize that you're going to see things in Bradbury Beyond Apollo that you might not have known about. Even if you read a lot of Ray Bradbury, you might not have known about some of these events, a few of these writings in, in the last four decades of his career. But what I wanted to do, while still covering the major milestones in his career, was to privilege as much as possible the things he felt were important in his writing life or his adapting for other media life. Things that were important to him as a person and in his memories. From the beginning, this series of biographies is really a biography of the mind. So what you're seeing here in the third volume is really landmarks of all the major work, but still also looking into the things that really he thought were important, the things, often private things, that gave him joy and enrichment in his life. All the years, uh, once he would fly, and actually before that, even going by ocean, all the years that he and Maggie would go to France. And for the 80s and 90s, uh, that was often twice a year, sometimes three times a year. Uh, Maggie was a, a fluent French speaker and reader, and that made it easier for Ray, who really never mastered uh, foreign languages. He was very interested and fascinated by foreign languages, but he was not a speaker or, or reader. But uh, he and Maggie would just enjoy the times they would spend in Paris, in hotels, sometimes in apartments. Well, that world also generated writing, and that world also generated experiences. And I privileged those worlds a bit on an equal footing with what he did more publicly. So we do pick out some of the things by the end of the book, I can say these half dozen things, including the whole phenomenon of Ray Bradbury theater. Again, an area that you have written on and done a lot of research on, but not only the phenomenon of it, but the fact that so many prominent and gifted actors wanted to be part of that. And whether the shows, given the budgets that they had, even though they were uneven, uh, there were some wonderful performances in those episodes. So the Ray Bradbury Theater, the two detective novels, Death is a Lonely Business and The Graveyard for Lunatics, The Halloween Tree, uh, and then then a couple of surprises late in life. Uh, you know, he was it was closing time in his life, and he knew it in the first decade of, of the 21st century. And he finished off projects that had been in the works for, for half a century, some, some of them. 
And then there were some surprises in there. Uh, I would say that, that most of those projects are not remarkable, but I always found that somewhere a band is playing, which he only finished a few years before his passing, is a remarkable little piece that brings us back to that earlier Ray Bread, where he could write about small towns. In this case, a town, uh, almost uh, a Shangri-La-like experience in the Arizona desert, which has attracted people with longevity in their genealogy. And the reporter, of course, who comes there, finds that there are no dates in the graveyard because these people are still living their lives. And he falls in love in this town. And, and it's, it's very much, it's Ray Bradbury with less of the sentimentality that creeps in if he's not careful in, in some of these nostalgic stories. So from 1970, 71 to the end of his life, ended up being a story that could be told by talking about what his impact was in many cases beyond the written word. My thanks to John Eller for joining me today. We'll continue the conversation next week, with John talking about his personal readings of Bradbury's fictions and the highlights of his writing of his latest book, Bradbury Beyond Apollo. And I'll put links to the Centre for Ray Bradbury Studies on my website, which is bradburymedia.co.uk. And please join me next week for another episode of Bradbury 100. Bradbury 100 is presented and produced by Phil Nichols in collaboration with the Centre for Ray Bradbury Studies. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. Please subscribe to the podcast using your podcast app. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, SoundCloud and all good podcast places. And you can find us on Facebook too. For more information, head to bradburymedia.co.uk. Bradbury 100